Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Can we talk seven else? Can, can we talk about seven else? Hello, out there. We have a lot to choose from when it comes to what we can bitch about, argue about, worry about. The spokes on the wheel of the news cycle are a blur. It's dizzying, intoxicating, a feeding frenzy, an all-you-can-eat buffet of entertainment, ideology, and virtue signaling. We're running low on class, grace, and humility. It's dying with those that sawed the Depression and World War II. These days, people don't share thoughts. They stuff them like pies in each other's faces. Usually a sneak attack done through social media, and it sure is distracting. All of this free thought and expression we've somehow become enslaved by. But that's just my big fat opinion. There once was a time not too long ago when an individual had maybe three strong opinions. And even then, they could be swayed. One of them often expressed hypnotically by the ancient glow of flames, was whether or not we're alone in the universe. And when everyone went to bed after this campfire, they lay awake for a while, feeling small, the stories still smoldering in their imaginations. The tales of close encounters, of abduction by aliens. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that somewhere between Trump COVID, and episodes of Tiger King, that UFOs were acknowledged by the U.S. government. And that's neat. I think it's great. A good sign. That if aliens have been spying on us, checking in, observing, that they haven't yet decided to conquer or destroy us. It gives me hope that they are benevolent, and not some ancient soulless race of overgrown insects out looking for snacks. It makes me think that if a species out there were capable of advancing to the point where their technology could bring them to us, then maybe that species would have to be good. Maybe an evil race would be incapable of working together appropriately to advance significantly enough for far-reaching space travel. And maybe the reason they're so slow to openly interact with us is because it would be like a human being talking to a dog. Maybe they're just trying to decide whether they should put us out of our misery or not. 
studying their map of known extraterrestrial life, considering Earth as a bud on a branch that should be left to blossom or be pinched out, trying to discern if we're worth it, prodding at us in ways we're too stunted to see, influencing us, nudging our growth to test its limits, its potential, its corruptibility. If so, I wonder how we're doing. Though maybe that's too far. Maybe extraterrestrial visits are just recreational excursions to planets in their infancy, field trips, like going to the zoo, an intergalactic holiday. And maybe not all aliens like I think are good. Just mostly they're good. Maybe they have their delinquents, swooping through like a car full of rowdy teenagers on a back road, knocking around mailboxes with a baseball bat on occasion, standby me style. Exploding a few cows, stuffing a rod or two up a human ass to check the temperature, lasering alien graffiti into wheat fields before blasting off through a wormhole. I mean, if Ford and Chevy start making spaceships, what do you think that crowd will get up to? When pigs fly. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime reprieve. Earth, October 73. Thursday, October the 11th, 1973. The sun has just finished going down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and now she sleeps. Though at her bedside, the drowsy industrial town of Pascagoula is still stirring, thanks to the commotion of two men running from the banks of the river, shouting for help, making their way through the darkening, deserted downtown, fishing rods in hand, work boots echoing, their shadows leaping away to climb the shuttered stone buildings, searching for a way in. The men are terrified, whispering in the dark, louder when passing through lamplight, screaming when they spot the cleaning ladies inside the Mississippi Register and begin banging the dust off the windows. They've got big news, a massive scoop for the journalists no longer in the building. 42-year-old shipyard foreman Charlie Hickson and ship fitter Calvin Parker, 19, are begging for someone to call the sheriff's office. But the women inside the building are too frightened to open the door. So the men move on. And when the older of the two, Charlie Hickson, finally gets a phone in his hands, he hesitates, then calls the law anyways. Here is former sheriff's investigator Glenn Ryder in his later interview with the Sun-Herald, speaking on that call that he had handed to him. Dispatcher said, Captain said, somebody won't talk to you on the phone. I said, hello. He said, Captain Ryder, I want to, to tell you something. I said, well, go ahead and tell me, man. I, I'm busy. No, he said, you'll laugh. I said, uh, look, if you want to tell me something, tell me. I, I'm not going to laugh. He said, I got picked up by a UFO. <laughs> and I laughed. But nobody was laughing once they heard the story. And it wasn't the story itself that held weight. It was the way it was delivered. I figured when I left the room and shut the door, they'd say, oh boy, we got them people fooled. But they didn't, that boy was climbing the wall. He was scared to death. He kept telling Charles, don't, don't talk to them, and people come back and get us. But, uh, the news, news broke and people was calling from everywhere. 
Yes, young Calvin Parker is climbing the walls. He's petrified. Well, his older friend here, Charlie Hickson, seems a little more excited, exhilarated even. And initially, Captain Ryder thinks this will be quick work. He places the men in a holding room together, a room that has a voice-activated recorder, hidden in the drawer of a desk. I'll play a snippet of that recording here for you now, and translate afterwards, as it's hard to hear. Alright, that was fucking horrible. How much money? How much money? Yeah, aliens exist now. You get it? Did, did uh, chills run up your spine listening to that? Here's the deal. Charlie Hickson, the older man, he's trying to calm 18-year-old Calvin Parker down. I'm going to have to give you the cold woe, here. Cold woe. Parker says, quote, I got to get home. I got to get to bed. Get some nerve pills or something. See the doctor or something. I can't stand it. I'm about to go all to pieces. And then the older man, Hickson, says, quote, I tell you, when we get through, I'll get you something to settle you down so you can get some damn sleep, end quote. This is what they caught them talking about. They weren't sitting there saying like, you know, we gotta get our story straight, we gotta figure this out. They were talking about the event that they were claiming to have just experienced. When the captain heard the tape and read the behavior of the men as honest, he decided to have them polygraphed and the two pass with flying colors. And this is when things start to get out of control. UFOlogists were called in and the two were hypnotized. The stories that we'll soon get to, never changing. The small tent is bombarded with press and people wanting to see with a can of the news. 1973 had already experienced a major increase in reportings of UFO sightings and alien abductions. And that's what we're talking about here. I don't think I did a good enough job fucking leading up into that. I mean, my intro did a, it tried, right? But I mean, so far here, fucking garbage. I apologize. But this spike in activity in 1973 was reminiscent of the late 1940s boon following and leading up to the infamous Roswell incident. There are no shortage of crackpots and hoaxes, ever. That goes for everything. Enthusiasts have a way of ruining what's special. They can't seem to help but smother it. But in this case, the so-called Pascagoula incident, many believe to this day that Parker and Hickson were telling the truth. As soon as the investigation was over and the men were free to go, 19-year-old Calvin Parker told his shipyard foreman and Charlie Hickson that he quit. He also told him he should keep quiet about the whole thing or it would haunt them both for the rest of their lives. Young Calvin returned to his hometown and didn't resurface for 45 years. By then, his old friend Charlie Hickson had died, penniless, despite his attempts to get rich off the incident. It's said the two kept in touch, and Calvin was even paying Charlie's electric bill before he passed in 2011. Anyways, let's fucking get into it. Calvin Parker is now 70 years of age. The Pascagoula incident is almost exactly 49 years old at the time of this recording. And though Charlie Hicks had told the story countless times, using a beer bottle as a microphone, until his death, I'm going to give you Calvin's account, the younger at the time, which isn't much different from Charlie's. I just like Calvin's straightforward and reverent way of telling it. I also appreciate that Calvin never wanted this, and Charlie made a life out of it. Charlie harmed the credibility of the story with his attempts to cash in with books and public appearances. 
Calvin, resented this. The thing had been real to him, not something to be exploited. Despite these feelings, the two remained friends for life, and Calvin even dedicated his book, My Story, by Calvin Parker, to the older Charlie Hickson, the dead now. In the dedication, he shares that Charlie was a hero of the Korean War, and from the moment the two of them became endangered by whatever came to get them that fateful October night, 49 years ago, Charlie had worked to protect the younger Calvin during that incident, not afterwards. But that should be said. They'd gone down to the Pascagoula River after work to try fishing. Calvin, though young, was respected for his hard work and skills as a ship fitter. He had a girl back home in a Mississippi town even smaller than Pascagoula, and they had plans for a family. Calvin worked long hours in preparation for this dream, a simple one, to have a home, a vehicle, a young wife, and a baby. On the way out to fish, Calvin spotted a man yelling at a woman at the side of the road. He asked Charlie to pull over so he could give the guy a taste of his own medicine. Charlie kept driving, laughing a little, and reminding the younger man that they were out to relax after a long day's work, not to fight. All of this to say that we aren't dealing with a babe in the woods here in Calvin Parker, as some skeptics would have you believe. He wanted to get something done about that. He was already a man at 19. Calvin is a little hesitant to fish where Charlie has taken them. It looks like a rough spot. There's junk on the shore and garbage in the water. The grass is tall and the whole scene feels like a no trespassing area. There's a large toll bridge towering on their left with the occasional ship squeezing through. Not the most promising scene for fishing, though the older Charlie disagreed. He had caught fish here. He assures Calvin it's a good spot. Calvin has been fishing with Charlie and Charlie's kids forever. Charlie is a friend of Calvin's father's and the reason he's out here working in Pascagoula. He knows the older man is no slouch when it comes to angling. In this case, they're out looking to nab a few redfish. And Charlie claims to have netted quite a few at this very location. Calvin doesn't say it, but it's more likely that Charlie is drawn to the spot as it has good cover for drinking. And again, I need to remind you here that Charlie, at the age of 42, is, is a veteran of the Korean War and a hero of that war, out here working the docks, working uh, a difficult job, uh, a hard labor job, and uh, he has ghosts in his mind constantly from that war. As, as I said, he's a hero of the Korean War, which means he killed a lot of people and saw a lot of people die. So a few drinks shouldn't sway us here, though it swayed many people. There's an old metal dock hidden behind the grass they can get out and away from the trash on, and they make their way out to it. Soon they're exactly where they wanted to be, and Calvin relaxes. The two haul a log out onto the dock to sit on, and they cast out their lines. They pull open their tabs on their beers and look over the shipping lane, enjoying their time until the sky blackens over a bruising horizon and... The two begin muttering to one another about the cool October air. It's closing in on 8 p.m. when the lights begin strobing behind them. Shit. Calvin knew this wasn't right. It felt too private to be public. Now they have to deal with a damn sheriff. He hears a zipping noise. Then the bluish lights begin intensifying. Calvin and Charlie stand up and they are soon blinded 
by the light. Behind them, there's something moving around, and when they turn, they see men. They are being approached by three figures. Three men? No, three somethings that have exited an oval ship, maybe 40 feet wide and 10 foot high, football-shaped. The figures are backlit by the strobing blue light and blinding whiteness emanating from the door of the open ship, of the spacecraft. That's a spacecraft. That's a UFO, Calvin thinks. Charlie, the Korean war vet, is looking to the younger Calvin, frightened, and Calvin is frightened when he sees the color drain from the man's face that he's always looked up to as a fearless man. Young Calvin immediately understands that these are alien beings, and such abstract deduction is alien to his character. He also understands that something is wrong with them. They seem sick. They move robotically. Their skin is pale gray and stretched onto their forms like a suit. They hover over the water when they reach it. And now, he has a better look. They are neckless, stocky, short, about five foot tall. They have no features on their square lumpy heads. Maybe a mouth, pointy nose, pointy ears. The mouth there, it's thin like the line of a pencil. The creatures are something a child might draw when envisioning a monster. And then they're on the dock with them. Two are grabbing Charlie, and one grips young Calvin's arm. He's injected with something, and instantly, he's calm. And he can see the same for Charlie as blood begins to color the older man's face again. In a flash, they're at the door of the ship. Calvin looks down at the hand that holds an odd grip on his arm. It appears to have a mitten over a pincer-like claw. Cool. You guys are weird, man, Calvin thinks. This is kind of cool, man. He's not a hippie, but he feels like one suddenly. The waves of peacefulness flowing through him as he flows into this UFO. He's taken down a bright hallway to a room made of more like, cool, man. And he's floated in and laid down in a 45-degree angle in the light itself. He can't move or speak, nor does he need to. Everything's all right. The great creature that brought him in floats away, and moments later a blue box the size of a deck of cards with metallic sides begins hovering around him. Calvin can hear it clicking as if it's taking pictures or collecting data. Then a small, gray, pleasant-looking creature floats into the room. Calvin feels more peace in its presence. It isn't ugly like the other one was, and seems more human-like, save the lack of features and gray skin. It's lithe, petite, and naked as the others had been, though again, perhaps the gray was a suit of protection. Another device begins floating around the room, a room made of light. And it's then that Calvin realizes the pleasant-looking being is speaking to him, telepathically. Quote, Do not be afraid. We will not harm you. Then the pleasant being exits, and one of the larger, ugly, haggard ones returns to grab Calvin by the arm and float him back out onto the fishing dock. That's all he remembers. And the simplicity of this, though it's not a simple situation, but the simplicity of his experience opened me up to this episode. Calvin is frozen, looking out at the river, He won't know for another 45 years that there are human witnesses to all this light and activity out there. 
Witnesses who will stay quiet for fear of being ridiculed, like the older Charlie Hickson, is destined to be for all his talking about this. Calvin's arms are stretched out in front of him, to the stars. He's been mentally, physically, spiritually clobbered by the experience. He's catatonic, eyes bright with moonlight. They are quivering, as if silently screaming for God to make his world right again. Then he hears the zipping noise again, and Charlie's wild eyes, human eyes, are staring into his own. The words, Are you all right? Swimming slowly from the man's mouth into Calvin's ear and snapping him from the paralysis, the men turn to see the UFO shoot up into the sky. Calvin looks to Charlie and after a long moment whispers that this should be kept between the two of them. Charlie shakes his head, no way, and begins hurrying off to the car. Calvin follows, and when Charlie opens the driver's side door, its window falls out and crashes to the ground. He tries to start the vehicle, but it's dead. Charlie lights a cigarette, then pulls out a bottle of Jim Beam from nowhere and takes a long swig. Calvin startles as the sounds of the world seem to flood back into existence. The wind, the water, a ship's horn in the distance. Then the two bolt into the safety of town, looking for help. Here's Calvin Parker, speaking for the first time as an old man, about what he did after his close encounter, washed himself with bleach. This from the Sun Herald. I've linked the full video in the show notes. They turned me loose. I got my car left. I went back home, and I didn't come back. Wasn't going to. It sounded like he might have been a little annoyed with Charlie, that maybe Charlie had leaked it, and because Charlie made a life out of this. It really teed me off at him. I mean, I was upset at Charlie, because I didn't want Charlie to go public with him. I I darn sure didn't want to be public with him. And Charlie told me he wasn't going public, and he took it and ran with me. And it uh, seemed like every time a camera flashed, he was in front of it. Every time there was a conference, he was at the conference. But I wanted to ask you, too, you know, what, what was a, it was so poignant to me, your reaction afterwards to gather up all your clothes and throw it all away and to wash yourself with bleach. I just knew. To me, now, they didn't look right. They looked like something was wrong. The aliens? Right. And I just knew that maybe they had brought some kind of disease or bacteria down or some kind of radiation. But you had nothing, nobody to talk to about. No, Charlie's only one. He had like he could care less. So I was thinking to myself, I don't want to kill a lot of people off. So when I got, uh, when we got home at night, I took all my clothes off, put them in a bag, even my shoes, and uh, put them in a bag and I throwed them away after I took my bath. What did happen afterwards? Because, you know, fame, this sort of instant fame, how it changed your life. If I had wanted my life to be an open book, I would have opened it up before then. I wanted to get a job, retire at the same job, pay on a house all my life, pay on a car all my life, and do normal things. But nothing was normal about the way my life ended up. And now you may be thinking to yourself, okay, who cares? Isn't this a true crime podcast? And my answer to that is, well, 
Do you not consider what happened to these two gentlemen a crime? They were strong-armed off a dock where they were fishing and forced to do whatever the hell all that was against their will. Yeah, but Jack Luna, what if it didn't really happen? Yeah. Well, what if it did? And I know I'm a bit of a sucker, but my gut is rarely wrong. It may be bloated by beer and have a hole in it from the last time I drank too much water and baking soda to combat heartburn, but my gut, as much as I try to ignore it, rarely falls flat. And it tells me that Calvin Parker is telling the truth. A word from one of the doctors who evaluated the men following this incident. Julius Bosco, M.D. Since I was down there, since I was a physician and several other scientists and investigators were asked to, to uh, consult and, uh, and look into the situation, I was asked and if, would I mind if I would be present, and I said I wouldn't mind at all. And while it is still very difficult for us to believe that a, that a, a, a spaceship landed and that robot-type uh, creatures came out and actually took these two people into, into the spaceship, these men, in my opinion, believe that they saw this and that they were being honest in reporting what they have reported. Just days after this reported alien abduction, another one occurred here on Earth, October 73. Another straight-up crime, if true, perpetrated by what I believe to be rogue alien craft with delinquent amateurs aboard, screwing with a compromised human. In this case, literally. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. 
And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. October 16th, 1973. Five days after the Pascagoula incident, it's 2 a.m. We are outside of Somerset, England, on a lonely stretch of country road leading to the village of Langford Budville. It's not desperately lonely. A crescent moon hangs in the sky, clouds passing through its dark yellow glow as if soaked in dehydrated urine. Trees shroud the way, planted long ago by a thoughtful soul in effort to make the travel more pleasant. A horse and carriage belong back here, illuminating the trek with lantern light, but instead there's dust flying and headlights searing through the blackness as Gabriella Versace, age 43, a respected member of this small community, flies through the witching hour alone in her little car. But she isn't alone. Up ahead lies an ambush. I bring in the idea of witches because it's the Halloween season but also because of what is about to happen to Gabriella, would, historically, label her as a witch. A man would be chosen. You know, and I don't want to get all uh, feminist here, but I worked through this story with my girl, and she said if this happened to a man, he'd be deemed chosen, but because it happens to a woman, she could almost be deemed a witch, and that's why I brought it in. So anyway, shout out to my girl there. There's a glare up ahead. It's like a single lamplight. It snaps into view on the road, the dark road up ahead. Perhaps it's a farmer out with a spotlight or a police officer. The light is very bright and is stationary. Then her car goes dead. Her headlights and radio fade out. She struggles with the wheel to steer off to the shoulder. Gabriella gets out of her car. The light up ahead barely reaches, but it's enough to light up the engine once she lifts the hood. It's just something to do. Gabriella stares at the black guts of the vehicle for a moment. This is an uncomfortable situation. Frightening if she fails to keep busy. A low hum begins to rise behind her. The light is approaching. How fortunate that help is here. Otherwise, a long, dark walk towards that creepy bright light. A heavy hand lands on her back and Gabriella's eyelids, against her will, stiffly fall shut. And here is what I'm talking about. This is a straight-up crime, if real. 
It's an abduction. An alien abduction. It's in the title. Wake up, people, sheeple. Alien abductions are crimes. Gabriella wakes up. She's floating through a field, lit up by a spacecraft that waits up ahead. It's shaped like, well, it's shaped like a UFO. 40 feet wide, 20 feet tall, sitting on two stout metal legs. Lights beam from windows and an open doorway on the spacecraft. There's a figure moving beside her through this open field, through the leaves that they cannot hear crunching beneath their feet. It's with her. It's robotic. It's silent. The only sound is the hum from the alien spacecraft ahead. That's what it is. An alien spacecraft. A UFO. Fear finally catches Gabrielle and she again falls unconscious. This time, willingly. But then she's awake, floating, naked, bathed in brightness. There's a table under her. And now, as she looks down, Gabriella realizes she's covered by a light blue blanket. The color of just past sunrise, of the blue and cotton candy. She tries to move, but her wrists and ankles are held by something like rubber manacles. She's in the spread eagle position. Something is working behind her, the robotic figure, clicking buttons. Then a door of light in front of her shuts off, and in floats three humanoid-looking forms. Each are about five feet six inches tall, Thin, they wear light blue tunics with gray frills. The blue matches the blanket on her. They have long black gloves, long black aprons, thick, gummy, black boots. Their faces are covered, though large, round eyes, black, fix on her, the subject. Two of the beings float to her side while the other comes to the foot of the table. It produces three dark cubes and sets them on a rail beside the terrified prisoner. They're like Rubik's cubes, but dark. And one is set by the feet, another at the waist, and the last by the head. The cubes start to glow softly and turn to a dark yellow, like being filled with dehydrated urine, and that's a joke. Something has to be done about that description I made earlier. I think that helped. I'm sorry. Dehydrated urine is a horrible description. Uh, this is serious business. Gabriella watches as the thing at her feet brings out grayish tools. She feels her toenails being clipped, then her blood being taken. She yelps when the blanket is removed and a pencil-like instrument enters her. She screams when it slides out and a suction cup is attached to her groin. The room is so cold. These things around her, these little probing creatures, are silent. No sounds of breath. They communicate with the occasional nod, as if agreeing to something passed between them telepathically. One of them replaces the blanket, and Gabriella senses that it has sensed her discomfort, which is a small relief. Maybe they're not just going to juice her insides out through her vagina and anus. After all, she didn't want to think it, but she does now. It's easy to think of things 
that are the worst once the threat is passed. She looks over at the robot that strides into view. That's what it is, a metallic gray robot that has brought her in here. And that's when the creature at the head of the examination table begins speaking in perfect English. A deep male voice, maybe stolen from an old movie, picked up on a frequency which betrayed Earth's location, maybe back in the 50s. The examiner at the foot of the table explains that the robot is a specimen retrieval device and that she is a specimen. Oh, cool, Gabriella maybe says. Um, how long you had it? It's probably expensive, huh? He looks expensive. Hey, any of you fellas know anything about cars? Mine broke down out there. But then the examination is abruptly ended. The suction cup releases from her groin, and the three creatures leave the room. Moments later, another identical creature enters. It removes the blanket, climbs onto the table, emotionless, black eyes. They loom over Gabriella's face, and she begins to freak out. Then it backs off and pulls out, like a gentleman, maybe a condom? Oh, no, no, that's not a condom. That's a pin. And he places it on her thigh. She feels a numbness creep through her body. Then the alien begins to commit what can only be described as a rape. She feels discomfort as it pumps away, and fear, but no pain. The sexual act takes as long as it needs to. The alien humping and humping and humping until it's finished. Lots of eye contact. Maybe the suction situation was a cleaning. Perhaps these dudes just wanted to see what all the fuss was about after coming across some porn we shot out there. Debbie does Dallas. I don't know. You don't know. The robot that brought her in stands to the side throughout, slowly greasing its extraction rod, no doubt. And when it's over, the three examiners return, and Gabriella passes out. She wakes up, standing beside her vehicle, rising to consciousness like the sun beginning to bleed over the English hillside to the east. Many hours have passed. Gabriella sees the hood of the car is closed and knows when she climbs in and turns the key that it will start. For her story, though, when she finally makes it home, she won't know how to start. And that's the scariest part, the nobody believing you part. Forget being raped by an alien. Okay, it's not the scariest part. But no wonder these people get together at conventions. It must be nice just to have someone believe you even if they're making it all up or you're making it all up, even if maybe you just had had a bad dream and someone can relate, it's nice to be surrounded by people when you're telling such stories that believe you. A lot of people say that these people make up these stories for attention, but I mean, fuck, dude, to make up these stories, this type of story for the type of attention that you get on that, raped by an alien, I don't think anybody wants that. I think that this shit happens or people believe that this shit happens to them and uh, it bothers them to the point where they have to go and reach out to others that claim to have experienced something similar I am sure that some of them are making it up but there has to be a percentage that it either happened to or they truly believe it happened to them this is a fucking pain in the ass to get involved in this 
UFO alien abduction community. You know, <laughs> it's, would you? Hey guys. Oh yeah. Back in fucking 84, just remembered. Somebody stuck a rod up my ass. Yeah, he was gray. He was gray. Sucked me out of my room with uh, uh, this weird vacuum uh, suction device. Light was beaming out of it. And it's become my entire life since. It's all I talk about. I lost my entire family over it. Um, And now you're my new family. Cool. There are countless stories like the two covered here today. These just so happened to land within a week of each other in October of 73 here on Earth. Almost exactly 50 years ago, 49 years ago. And there's no way to tell if they're true stories, but I think we can all agree that they're not out of the realm of possibility, considering that we now live in a world where the UFO is acknowledged as real. Something is out there. Something's likely even here. And I don't like it. I don't like the way these things operate, even though they may not mean harm. It's harmful abducting people. Just in case you're listening, you little freaks. It's scary. And here on Earth, it's a crime. When I was younger, I had a dream about an entire relationship that never even happened. And I'm not saying I was abducted by aliens, but I remember looking out of a window and seeing a bright light on the lawn and going outside and just nothing. And within that nothingness, in this dream was an entire relationship with a family and it boots off. It's, it's that simple. It's a dream I had where a light is on the lawn. I look at the window to see it and I open the door and I suddenly have a entire relationship with another family and it boots off and that's a dream. So I'm not going to go to any conventions anytime soon. But, uh, and I'm also not going to let that drive me crazy. I never did. I just got into the real world. But it's that experience that makes me feel a little empathetic to these stories. And, and also, it's the spooky season. And, and when people ask me, you know, what scares you, um, I say alien abduction. It does. And uh, that's my story to share for you today. I'll be back soon with some real, so-called real shit. that'll do it you might think it's silly when i say i needed this this little break from murdered girls and stolen children and describing the way their killers eyeballs dance as they molested and raped away you may think it a bit rich coming from the guy who can't seem to consistently get two episodes at a month publicly the thing is that it never stops because the work i do over on uh, dark topic patreon unfortunately has well fortunately i mean for me fortunately i mean it's where I, where i where i make my money i'll be honest um is where i put a lot of my focus so if you'd like more dt style content head on over to patreon.com slash dark topic but i have put in the work where it, it, it is coming you just haven't seen it yet the wave hasn't crested yet is that the way it goes <sighs> shout out to everybody who uh was harmed by all the weather recently too and i mean that sincerely i've been watching all of it and um so cool to see just there's so much fake um fake shit there's there's so much like uh thoughts and prayers you know 
and to watch a lot of the videos coming out of like the recent the recent weather weather hurricanes and shit that that were happening in the in the states and, and in on the east coast here in canada to see people really step up and and come together as a community is very heartening um when i talk about the human race and and all that during this episode i think if something's watching in those moments our true nature um is really something to behold and and i i really feel like we're worth it when it comes down to it i do it's just when we're left to kind of like chill we start to fuck around too much you know and it becomes embarrassing but when the shit goes down you know look at like 9-11 world war ii world war one um like a sh- bunch of shit that i'm missing um as a as human beings on the side of what's to be perceived as right maybe by an alien race um, will be quite endearing I think and uh, I think that we're worth it when it counts anyways I want to share the first episode of Jack Luna's dark fiction that I share over on Patreon this is obviously a ploy to get you to come over to Patreon but it's also what I what I mean it to be is um, something extra just to just to share because I've been away for so long and promised so much. I want to give a little bit more here. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Jacqueline's Dark Fiction. And um, until next time, which is available on Patreon uh, once a month. And until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you for the support. I've noticed the numbers are climbing and... Um, I get a lot of messages and, and people are really hanging with me and I appreciate it. I'll be right. I'll be with you. I swear to you. It's, it's here. It's coming. Thank you. Hey, before I get started here, this is uh, the first episode I'm calling this story one of Jack Luna, <laughs> Jack Luna's dark fiction. Uh, it's called deep breath, Dave. I have written much less fiction than maybe I've led people to believe. Um, I rarely have have tried. I've probably written about four or five good short stories in my lifetime. I've written a play, and I'm halfway through a novel that I've been working on for probably about eight years. Really, I'm caught up in the world of true crime and what I do with Dark Topic. And as you know, for a long period of time, I was caught up in other uh, escapades. (laughs) and um, I'm back just to my writing and trying to really focus my energy into what I hope will be my career going forward and that's a focus on writing and uh, podcasting when it comes to Dark Topic and um, hopefully at some point being able to write um, novels as I get older and I'm blessed i guess with the i guess i'm blessed with this uh with patreon and with the support that you guys are giving me to have a venue where i can work out some of um my writing skills when it comes to fiction and i'm hoping to collect these into a collection so i hope you enjoy and uh, have patience with me as i work through um, working this muscle when it comes to fiction Deep breath, Dave.
Dave has been standing on his daughter's front porch a good long minute since he first knocked, and he's resisting another knock. He knows if he knocks again and there's nothing, he's going to be mad, and he doesn't want to be mad. He just wants to watch the goddamn game. Life has become an exercise in patience since the doctor had diagnosed him as a, well, what do you call it? Complete fucking lunatic? He didn't say it in those words, but that's what he meant. And Dave knows he is. He loses it all the time. And as of late, it's become a detriment to his heart. Deep breath, Dave. The fucking minivans here, they must be home. It's late September in Buffalo, and it's colder than it should be. The aging electrician's aching hands massage one another in the front pocket of his Bill's hoodie. That's what the kids call it, a hoodie. And he doesn't like the term much. Makes him feel supremely uncool to say it, and he won't say it, except in his own head, hoodie. A 68-year-old man in his hoodie, looking in the windows of his daughter's house on a Sunday afternoon. What in the hell is going on here, damn it? He's missing the pregame. Who invites someone over that doesn't answer the door? Derek, his knucklehead son-in-law. That's who. How about you watch the game here Sunday, Dave? I'll make some meatballs. He doesn't smell any fucking meatballs, though he's beginning to feel a little like a meatball out here simmering on the porch, looking in the windows like a damn pervert. Deep breath, Dave. He knocks again, rings the bell again, walks around the side of the house, but it's tight as a drum, fenced off and gated. Solid work done by the same aching hands now out of the hoodie and searching for a smoke and a lighter. He finds them in the bib of his coveralls and curses. He'd been on a job site all morning arguing with the inspector about a panel, the placement of it, some new code, whatever. They figured it out. His guys were on it. Sunday used to be a day of rest. Now it's just another day to make money, except when football season rolls around and in Buffalo, that means it's time to worry about a whole different set of bills. Dave is struggling to get his smokes out. He'd thrown his hoodie, or shit, what did they used to call it before stoner college kids speak became the norm, a hooded sweatshirt? He'd thrown the thing on over his coveralls, and now the cool air had gotten to his hands. Christ, it had gotten cold quick. Whatever happened to seasons? It could snow today, in September. Maybe those environmental queers were onto something after all. Wouldn't that be something? And that's sarcasm. Dave thinks in sarcasm. Of course they're onto something. Been on to something since the late 70s, but good luck convincing a generation hooked on Fox News, opioids, and being a general pain in the ass to change a thing. Hell, they can't even change the channel. Deep breath, Dave. That's what the doctor had said. I want you to verbally tell yourself to take a deep breath, Dave. So now it was his mantra. Deep breath, Dave, is what the guys were even calling him now, because he spoke it out loud to himself so often. He gets the cigarette pack out from the pouch of his coveralls, having strangled himself half to death with his hooded sweatshirt in the process. Dave's relieved to find the lighter tucked inside the pack and slides it, along with a smoke, expertly out with a gnarled wooden thumb and finger. Arthritis. The handyman's reaper. Where the heck are these kids? He lights up and the first long drag warms him a little. Dave spits a small shred of tobacco and bites at a nail, smoke swirling into a 
squinted, yellowish eye that barely bats at it. He leans back against the fence that he built, and it doesn't sag in the least. A small dump of dopamine is delivered like late payment for a job well done. He straightens a little with pride and checks his watch. Quarter two. Fifteen minutes to kick off. He thinks he hears the hot tub bubbling back there. Another job he'd been heavily involved with and didn't receive payment for, other than the smile on his daughter's face, which was good enough for him. Derek, his son-in-law, is basically useless. That's how he became a stay-at-home dad, a role that's to be respected, apparently. But to Dave, it's just sad. Pathetic, if he's being honest. He takes a quick drag and exhales before bringing his face to the fence. Susie? Derek? Jenny? Nothing. He built the damn fence too well. It's like a fortress. If Jenny were back there, he wouldn't know it. His granddaughter, now four years old, has a condition. Dave can never remember the name of it. Doesn't want to remember the name of it. All he needs to know is that Jenny's his granddaughter. And he's her grandpa Dave. And that's it. He don't need no pity party every time the poor kid's brought up. Jenny's got cerebral syndrome or nonverbal or whatever the fuck they want to call her. She's a little girl, damn it. Let's just let her be one. He pulls out his cell phone, a brick by today's standards. It's his work phone and he won't get rid of it. His daughter Susie always teases that he doesn't want to risk losing the numbers and he knows that's stupid, but still. Seriously, what if he loses the numbers? His whole business is in the damn thing. They transfer over, he can write them down. Yeah, yeah, he supposes. The truth of the whole thing is that he doesn't like change. There was a time you'd hear a landline ringing inside of a house if you were calling from outside on a cell phone. But for Dave, here on his daughter's porch in 2022, it's just a lonely ringtone and now a hellacious fart slowly peeling from his butt cheeks. He hangs up when the voicemail kicks in, then takes a deep breath, smelling for the horror that's taking its time, meandering up through his layers of clothing. Is he sick? Catching the first waft, he thinks so, but there's a lot more tang on it than Derek's meatballs, that's for sure. God, he needs to eat if that smells good. Those meatballs, they were three quarters the reason he's here, and all he's ingested today are about a dozen smokes, three black coffees, and now a fart. Where are these damn kids? He could just walk in, but there's something about that. He doesn't want to go there. He just wants to hear his daughter say the old standby, Granddad's here! and have little Jenny handed over and see if Derek bought any beer, doubt it. But after another round of rapping on the door, peering in the windows, and hollering through the fence, Dave walks across the lawn to the street where he flicks his smoke, then heads back to the front door, opens it reluctantly, and is met with the stillness of a normally bustling home. Dave can barely bring himself to call out. Kids? He hates this absolutely damn well hates it. In front of him, sitting on a chair, seeming to block entry to the living room, the kitchen, the stairs on the left that lead to the bedrooms, it's a note on this fucking chair. It's in an envelope. And because it's sitting on the oddly placed chair, it's hard to miss. But even if it had been 15 feet down the hall ahead on the floor, he would have spotted it. For on the envelope in big red letters, all in capitals, is the word READ fucking read. You read. Dave hates this. Maybe it's too many crime shows, too many of them podcasts he's been hooked on at the job site, in the truck, 
Hell, he's been listening in the shower, even. His wife says it's making him paranoid, but Dave prefers prepared. There's been something telling him since he pulled his truck up out front about 15 minutes ago now that something's wrong. It wasn't just that the house was silent and that the smell of meatballs wasn't in the air. It was the way their minivan was parked, facing in. Derek always backed it, being the fastidious little twat he was. He'd even go out and switch it around as Susie pulled in front first, which drove Dave crazy. The way he treated her. Everything his son-in-law did drove him nuts, was the truth of it. The way Derek spoke to his daughter, like there was a constant seething resentment there. Deep down, he knew that resentment came from Derek's unspoken belief that their daughter's condition was Susie's fault, and the fact that Sue had a good job, which forced Derek to stay home, dealing with a difficult child, added to the resentment. The two were unhappy, he knows this, and now looking at the envelope clearly placed here for him to find, the father-in-law who never accepted Derek, who had admittedly always given the guy a hard time to make up for the misery he's inflicting on his daughter, looking at that envelope makes Dave nearly faint. Deep breath, Dave. Read. The word is written like a shout, and Dave knows it's Derek shouting at him. He knows that he's been invited here not for meatballs and football, how simple the boy must think him, but for some kind of sick revenge. Dave doesn't hesitate for long. If there's trouble, he needs to see what can be done about it. He picks up the envelope, puzzling at the pair of swim trunks it rests upon, and he calls out again. Kids! Hey, what's going on with this letter? The house is dark, save a glow upstairs. The tired September sunlight seems to be having trouble getting in through the windows. Dave refuses the letter's demand and begins traversing the staircase to the bedrooms. He has to see what Derek has done to his daughter and young Jenny. He knows what's happening. He's heard about this shit. His hair is on end and he begins taking the stairs two at a time. Annihilator is the word in his mind. Family annihilator. When he reaches the second floor, it's as if he's underwater. Everything is slowed down. He so badly doesn't want this to be happening, but it is, and the result is like a car crash. Jerry takes in the situation upstairs. Every door is closed. There are four of them. Jenny's room, a closet, the bathroom, and the master bedroom at the end of the hall. All right, joke's over, kids. Come on out now. Silence. Dead silence. God, this is terrible. This is so fucking bad. Dave opens his granddaughter's door and the image of her laying stiffly in bed, still in her nightclothes, a pillow where her face should be, is blessedly dissolved when he finds the room and the bed. Empty. Deep breath, Dave. Next, the closet. Easy. Nothing though he scans for towels and sheets that may be missing, soaking up blood somewhere. Next, the bathroom, with his daughter in its tub, no doubt, throat slit, arms around a wide-eyed Jenny, head dented like a junkyard doll, wrong again. Empty. Deep breath, Dave. There's no room for relief here, with the final room remaining. The master, all three in the king-sized bed he envisions, Four, if you include the shotgun clutched in Derek's hands, a bloody, gore-strewn headboard behind where his head should be, the girl's gaping, purple-faced, 
tongues and eyeballs protruding from the strangling and empty. Deep breath, Dave. The entire upstairs is empty. Dave stands in the doorway to the master bedroom, heart pounding in his chest like it wants out. Deep breath, Dave. The envelope is crushed in his fist, red letters now screaming to be heard. He tears it open. Come join us in the hot tub. I've got a surprise for you. Derek. My God, they'll be bobbing like apples in a pool of blood. He's down the stairs. He's through the kitchen. He's out the glass sliding door and across the patio stones. And now he's greeted by the smell of meatballs simmering in the smoker. A brand new big projector screen is standing out there. The game's on it. Let's go Bills. Let's go Fuck me. His daughter and little Jenny and Derek. They're smiling in the hot tub. Granddad's here. Derek stands up. Hey, Pops, where's your shorts? Hey, did Susie back the van in out there? Deep breath, Dave. And as he takes it, and then another, his heart explodes with relief. And from a devastating heart attack that kills Dave on the spot. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 